Welcome to Audio Helicase, the podcast from Whitehead Institute, where we unwind the science and the people behind some of the Institute's most exciting discoveries. How does a developing embryo know where the arms and the legs should go? To make a fully formed body, cells have to communicate with each other to form patterns, and these patterns become the building blocks of tissues and organs. I'm Connor Gearin, Digital Media Specialist at Whitehead Institute. In this episode, I'm talking with Pu Lin Lee, the newest member of the Institute. Pu Lin studies how cells communicate with each other to form multicellular patterns. She focuses on molecules called morphogens. These molecules are the primary guide for developing tissues, providing the blueprint for the body. Morphogens help give direction to the embryo, guiding where the head and the limbs should develop, as well as controlling the finer details of organs with many cell types like the brain. Before coming to Whitehead Institute, Lee earned her PhD in chemical biology at Harvard University in the lab of Leonard Zahn, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship with Michael Ilowitz at California Institute of Technology. By growing cells in petri dishes and genetically engineering them to form patterns, Lee hopes to uncover the fundamental rules for tissue formation, which could address long-standing questions about development and potentially prove useful to learning how to regenerate body parts or heal damaged tissues. Hulin, welcome to Audio Helicase. Can you describe what your lab is focused on? Yeah, uh, so my lab right now is trying to build upon this methodology I developed during my postdoc time, which is engineering cells to create these kind of uh, tissue patterning or developmental modules. The approach we're taking is bottom-up, uh, meaning we take the cells that naturally cannot form any patterns, uh, and then we engineer some of the cells uh, to become sender cells so they can secrete morphogens, uh, and then the other cells are uh, receiver cells, so they have the, provide them the capability to respond uh, to the signal. We also engineered uh, fluorescent reporters, meaning when the, cell, the cells receive a signal, they will glow, uh, and uh, they will glow to different levels based on the signal they have received. Uh, so using this approach, uh, we can co-culture the senders and receivers in a petri dish so they can communicate with each other, uh, and then we can really watch the communication happening in real time under the microscope. So you have the sender cells, which secrete morphogens, and then the receiver cells react to this morphogen based on how much of the morphogen signal they receive. So it's a bit like a cell phone tower broadcasting a signal with cell phones receiving more or less depending on how far away they are. Right, so we're trying to understand how cells communicate with each other within the tissue context and what properties of the signaling molecules control how far they can go. The distance uh, between the different cells that can talk to each other is a very important role uh, in maintaining tissue homeostasis or uh, in uh, cancer progression. Within this umbrella, we're also interested in the evolutionary perspective of cell-cell communication because cell-cell communication is really fundamental for building a multicellular system. Life started with a unicellular system, and then different cell types come together to form a multicellular system that different cell types have specialized function. So you could think about how these cell-cell communication pathways evolve. Do you remember how you first became interested in, in studying development? Yeah, so when I was a graduate student, initially, um, I was inspired by like discovering drugs for stimulating stem cells to help leukemia patients with bone marrow transplant. So that's very direct biomedical uh, questions. 
So that's where my project started. But we were using superfish as a model organism to to approach this question. Um, so. I did chemical screening. I found some interesting drugs that could potentially help stem cells to engraft the hosts. But then I kept asking the question about how the drugs work, and the, that got me really into the fundamental mechanism of like signaling pathways, and then start using the developing embryo as a model to study cell-cell uh, -cell communication in that context. And I think that's the the first time I realized developmental biology is really interesting. And I say one of the most beautiful uh, biological systems. Um, I remember the first time when I was uh, watching embryo development from a single cell to a larva, like within a couple of days. It was just really the most amazing thing that occurred. <laughs> so within like 24 hours, you start to see a little heart pumping in the in the tiny embryo. And then it just it can't stop wondering about how all these cells learned what to, what they are becoming, and how come every single embryo can follow this genetic program precisely, and always develop into uh, this beautiful um, organism. And within development, morphogens have a really central importance because they form gradients that instruct cells on what cell type to become. They're a central focus for your lab. So when did scientists first learn about morphogens? The history of morphogen actually started, um, say, in the 1950s. Uh, the first person who um, coined the name morphogen is actually a mathematician, Alan Turing. Uh, he was asking the question about pattern formation just in the natural system. He basically proposed some very simple uh, equations, uh, we call it reaction diffusion uh, equations, uh, to e explain how you can generate periodic patterns with just two diffusing species or molecules. But at that time, that was really way before modern molecular biology, so I had no idea about whether it actually exists uh, in a, a biological system or it's just like a mathematician's fantasy <laughs> about how things work. And then the morphogen, actually, uh, the concept was uh, under debate for like decades um, because some people feel like diffusion process is not robust enough to create a precise tissue pattern and generate such complex system. But only until uh, the boom of molecular biology uh, in late 70s and 80s and 90s, um, when we start to uh, be able to identify uh, all these different molecules and genes, and they figure out the identity of these uh, morphogen molecules. And now we have uh, we know very well about um, a limited set of mor morphogens, and they are being used over and over again to pattern uh, different tissues in our body. One very interesting aspect about morphogen is, even though we have uh, such complex tissue st structures in our body, and uh, different organisms also take on very different shapes and have different uh, tissue, uh, tissue types, but they're all patterned by a very limited number of morphogen families. Like, there are probably only uh, five or six families of these molecules. Most of them are proteins, with very few exceptions that are small molecules. So. It's also another puzzle, uh, which is sort of related uh, to uh, what I'm interested in the lab as well. How do you use this small set of morphogens to create complex patterns uh, and how cells integrate these different information together to make complex decisions? 
What questions are you currently exploring related to morphogens and to cell-cell communication? Right now, we're heavily invested in what controls the uh, communication uh, length scale and time scale um, in a multicellular system. You could imagine this question involves um, understanding the cell-cell communication aspect like outside the cells. So the morphogen gradients uh, have to sort of match the tissue size in order to properly pattern the tissue. So understanding uh, what controls the size of the gradient, its shape, uh, would have a direct uh, impact on understanding the, the proportion of different cell types within a tissue. The second question we're really interested in understanding is how cells take these quantitative information and then convert them into fake decisions. Because during development, uh, where you have a continuous gradient, cells receive graded information, um, but it's a continuous spectrum. But in the end, cells have to convert them into discrete decisions, like two or three different uh, outputs. So how cells convert this information is something we're also very interested in. A third question would be taking these communication system to the next level, which is how cells integrate uh, multiple signaling information to make a collective decision. Because uh, within a multicellular system, cells are exposed to a very complex environment. Oftentimes, they have to compute more than one or two or three uh, inputs. So uh, what are the genetic circuits that enable cells uh, to, to make different decisions based on uh, a particular combination of signaling inputs? Because development is a very dynamic process, in order to understand the whole system, we need to basically watch the whole developmental process in real time, which is also very challenging to do in, inside an embryo, uh, except a few um, like simpler organisms. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we're taking this bottom-up approach to simplify the complex system into well-controlled, well-defined components and asking whether if we put these components together, can you produce multicellular behavior? And if we perturb a particular parameter, what would be the a direct outcome uh, of this perturbation? Importantly, we can also directly uh, image the whole process in a petri dish over multiple days uh, and get really quantitative data out of the, uh, the experiments. There's one cell signaling pathway that you've been able to study in great detail, and it's called the hedgehog pathway. Can you tell us a bit about how this pathway works as an example of a key morphogen signaling system? The hedgehog pathway is one of the most classic uh, morphogen gradients. It does form a gradient in many developmental systems, such as the patterning of the central nervous system to specify different types of neurons, and also controls the uh, number of digits in our limbs. Mutations in the hedgehog pathway it has been associated with lots of developmental defects and also cancer. Uh, so the pathway itself is very interesting medically. And finally, the hedgehog pathway itself has a really unique signal transduction logic. Uh, compared to other pathways. So in many other pathways, when you think about how cells communicate with each other, usually you have a ligand that binds to the receptor, and this receptor then will activate the signal inside the cells. But in the hedgehog pathway, the logic is a little bit reversed. <laughs> so in the absence of the ligand, the receptor inhibits the signal. And then 
when the ligand binds to the receptor, it's uh, sort of mutually inhibiting each other, and that actually derepress the signal inside the cells and allow the cells to activate the downstream signaling activity. And the pathway also has a really evolutionarily conserved negative feedback loop, uh, meaning whenever the signal is on, um, the cells always try to express more of the receptor, so that would allow the cells to adjust the level of the receptor based on the ligand. So why is this pathway designed in such a, a different way? What kind of capability or function could it provide given its unique architecture? So that's why uh, for all these different reasons, uh, we, we started with the hedgehog pathway and tried to first break it down into its only very the simplest uh, signal transduction logic and then try to build back the negative feedback loop into the system and to ask the question, with or without the negative feedback loop, uh, how, how does it behave in terms of uh, forming the morphogen gradient? And so digging into that a mm -hmm. bit further, the double negative logic, yeah. it's not the simplest solution that evolution could have provided. Right. So why do we end up with these seemingly more complex solutions to, to um, development problems? Right, right. So it turns out both from mathematical modeling and also our experiments, uh, we showed uh, with this kind of complex uh, counterintuitive pathway architecture that actually allows the uh, hedgehog system to form a robust morphogen gradient despite uh, variation in the level of the hedgehog ligand itself. Intuitively, you would think when a tissue has a little bit more of the morphogen ligand itself or less ligand, that you might have a different size of the gradient. But uh, when you have this negative feedback loop, it actually allows this, the tissue to respond to the, uh, the level uh, of the morphogen gradient and then tune the receptor uh, level. That would allow the tissue to really control, precisely control the uh, morphogen gradient itself. So then you'll always form the morphogen gradient with a particular size and shape. So that would allow the organism to develop robustly develop uh, the stereotypical tissue pattern that would be required for the uh, later functionality of the tissue. Yeah. yeah. So thinking broadly, thinking mm -hmm. of evolution, there are benefits sometimes to more complex solutions. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> um, the question is how, how can we understand the rationale, like why uh, the pathways are wired in a certain way. We're really good at figuring out how the genes are interacting with, with each other, but understanding why uh, these interactions uh, exist and how they ha actually have evolved, what kind of function they can provide, I feel that's the next big question. If we are able to understand the systems that evolution has developed, will that then help us address problems facing the field of tissue engineering? Essentially, what's stopping us right now from growing complete organs in the lab? It is a very complex <laughs> question. Um, basically, you are asking a lot for the cells to do outside of its normal uh, developmental context. So far, a lot of the tissue engineering approaches is to provide a scaffold that are certain size and shape and then you see the cells uh, on top of the scaffold. Uh, basically, hard program something before you have the cells already. It has been very useful for certain applications, but it's generally limited to simple structure uh, like skin. 
But thinking about like kidney or liver, each tissue or organ is composed of many different cell types. Uh, how could you precisely define which cell types would go to where within a complex tissue? But these kind of engineering goals have been achieved by embryos and over and over again using cell-cell communication. So we're hoping we can program the cells to be able to communicate with each other and then make decisions so we can pattern the cells, let the cells pattern themselves uh, by giving them the genetic programs. What we're trying to do uh, is to take this bottom-up approach. We can pro- try to program the cells to recapitulate these developmental processes. Uh, so we're hoping, even though the question we're asking is developmental biology questions, uh, but we're hoping uh, the principle we can reveal or the molecular tools or engineering tools we can develop uh, will eventually be useful uh, for tissue engineering. You can learn more about Pu and Lee's research and Whitehead Institute Science on our website at wi.mit.edu. Stay tuned for future episodes of Audio Helicase and catch up on past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.